What shapes your attitude to creation care? Is it our culture or our biblical perspectives? If biblical perspectives, what are they? I spent much of lockdown reading and reflecting and writing on these questions. What follows is an extract from some of that thinking. I suggest you have some note-taking equipment to hand and a Bible, maybe with markers in Genesis 1, 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 21. What I'm about to say will probably trigger all sorts of questions. Feel free to get in touch via the Christchurch website so that we can discuss. For many, lockdown gave time and stillness to take note of our surroundings in a way that our usual hectic lives do not provide. Many animals seemed to sense the change. So we saw deer on the streets of London, dolphins returning to the seas around Hong Kong, not to mention the variety of wildlife in our back gardens. And clearer night skies provided spectacular views of a comet and three of the nearest planets. This common experience would probably lead us to agree with Genesis that the created order is very good. On the other hand, COVID-19 itself and headlines during September 2020 may lead us to question the description, very good. Headlines such as severe flooding in many places south of the Sahara, US forest fires on the back of a decades-long drought, breaking off of a vast area of glacier in Greenland, wildlife populations falling by more than two-thirds in the past 50 years, one million species facing the threat of extinction, and loss of habitat forcing wildlife and humans into ever closer contact, allowing the spread of pandemic diseases like AIDS, Ebola and possibly COVID-19, or not to mention a tidal wave down Winchester High Street. Human agency is a common root cause behind most, if not all, of these headlines. Much of our Western culture pursues the madness of believing in growth without consequences, driven by consumerism and individualism, which says, I can do whatever I want regardless of the impact on either human or non-human creation, whether that's geographically or in a future generation. How do we respond to these contrasting feelings and the pressure of our culture? It will not be easy. The tension that we see between disease control and the economy in managing COVID-19 is also present in that between creation care and maintaining livelihoods. An underlying question is what shapes our mindset? Is it our culture? or our faith in God's guidance. As Christians, we're called to love God and our neighbours. And those neighbours include non-human creation, people we may never see on another continent, and even those of generations yet to come. Books such as Ruth Valerio's Alice for Lifestyle 
give practical suggestions. But so often we fall in with our culture and we do nothing. Paul challenges us in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that applies as much to a Christian practice of creation care as it does to all other aspects of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Paul's intention was that our minds be renewed by the Spirit of God as we read the Scriptures. Hilary Marlowe writes this, Our starting point is with the Bible, not because it gives detailed guidance on reducing our carbon footprint, but because it offers a profound understanding of the world, God's relation to it and our place within it. And that's true, but sometimes our reading of the Bible can distort our approach to creation care. Don't worry, Mr. President, when we've cut down the last tree, the Lord will return, was the advice given by a senior politician to President Reagan. To provide seeds for the transformation that Paul calls for, I want to consider three questions and then a brief summing up. Who or what is creation for? How might Genesis 1 to 3 shape our thinking? How might texts of the end time shape our meaning, our thinking? And then summing up. So who or what is creation for? I suggest that people will hold to one or maybe a mixture of three different views. Theocentric, it's all for God. Biocentric, it's all for the bios. And anthropocentric, it's all for humans. In a theocentric view, the created order is there for God's benefit. In the A&E creation myths, we are told that God's created humans to do the dirty work, so that they could sit back and chill out. Nowhere in the scriptures do we find a sense that God created because he lacked or needed something. Creation is seen as a divine act of grace, of generous, overflowing love with all creation simply called on to worship God for his goodness and his provision. See Psalms 104 and 148. A theocentric view will see creation as, in some sense, a place where God dwells. Most of the ancient Near East religions saw the cosmos as a cosmic temple in which the gods resided. And we see a version of this across the Bible. In Genesis 3, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in Eden. Or in Exodus 40 and 1 Kings 8, God's glory descending on the tabernacle and temple. And then in Revelation 21, the very presence of God in the renewed earth. A theocentric view will rightly place God at the centre. He is acknowledged as ultimate owner. His glory is revealed in all that he has made. See Psalm 19. And with such a view, creation care becomes part of our worship. 
but sometimes a theocentric view is used to absolve us of the need to care. Some Christian objectors to the idea of human-induced climate change claim, wrongly in my view, that God does not allow us to control the weather, or that God will not let us damage, and leads them to deny any need to address global warming. But at what level do we expect God to step in? What happens when Simba starts to hump Bambi? Many secular environmentalists take a biocentric view. God is seen as irrelevant or non-existent. The whole created order is self-contained, self-governed and interconnected. A biocentric view rightly says that we need to be concerned about human damage to the ecology because we are part of the same biosphere. It's what Pope Francis has described as our common home. There is interconnectedness, because if we damage the biosphere, ultimately we are damaging ourselves. So creation care benefits both non-human and human creation. And that idea of interconnectedness can also be seen in scripture. The Genesis account, as we'll see, is very good when all that has been made interconnects properly. Humans are part of the created order. The word for living creature in Genesis 1, 20 and 24 is the same as that for living being in 2, 7. However, the biblical story is very clear that the biosphere is not self-contained. There is a God who has not only made the world, but who also sustains it and has entered into it. There is a God who has placed humans on earth as his tenants with a mandate to take care of it. Others take an anthropocentric view. The non-human creation is there solely to fulfil the needs and fancy of the human creation. Earth is ideally, maybe uniquely, suited to life, and humans have won the ecological jackpot. So we have this wonderful world to use, maybe we should read, exploit or ransack, however we want. Some Christians have interpreted the opening of Genesis and Psalm 8 in a similar fashion. Humans were the last to be created, so are obviously at the top of the chain. Actually, on that logic, it's women who are at the top. As top of the chain, everything else is at the human's disposal, and only human needs and concerns matter. Such views lay behind some who say we can't take creation care seriously, because it would interrupt the political and economic model which drives our world. Now there is truth in the anthropocentric view that biblical narratives would not deny that God has given the human beings good things to enjoy. Psalm 104 talks of wine that gladdens human hearts and oil to make their faces shine. And we're given minerals to be used when the people go into the promised land. God says to them there's going to be copper and iron in the hills that you can use. However, in Genesis, we will find that there are constraints on human use of non-human creation. While in Psalm 8, we find that the human authority 
is delegated from God and we are responsible to him. Theocentric, biocentric and anthropocentric views have elements which help us in thinking about our approach to creation care. But a creative tension needs to be held between them. One way in which many Christians today find useful is to imagine a triangle. You may want to draw one. At the top is God. The other two angles are human creation and non-human creation. Such a picture holds the three views in tension. It highlights that all of creation is under God's authority. That there is a, link, a direct link between the human creation and God. A direct link between human and non-human aspects of creation. And a direct link between non-human creation and God. It is because of this last relationship between God and non-human creation that our human relationship to the earth and all its creatures becomes such an important theological and ethical issue for Christians. I suggest that creation care is, or should be, a natural result of holding the three views in creative tension. To explore the human responsibilities further, let's start with Genesis 1 to 3. As we now have them, these chapters in Genesis probably came together either just before or during the exile in Babylon, so the 6th century BCE. They draw probably on older material, both oral and written. In form, the chapters are similar to other A&E creation myths, but there are big theological differences. In the culture of that time, origins were described in functional rather than material terms, and that's reflected in the Genesis account. Let me give an example to illustrate the difference. You pick up a letter that someone has dropped. You take it to a scientist to understand more about it. She analyses the ink, the handwriting, the paper, a trace of perfume and so on. Her report is a material description. Read the letter and you get a functional description. It's a love letter from the lover to their beloved. Genesis 1 to 3 is functional rather than material. It means we read these chapters to understand the theology rather than getting hung up on a supposed faith versus science conflict. And it's in this context of a functional description that the aspects of creation are described as good or very good. Many writers have expressed that this means fit for the purpose God intended. John Walton uses the illustration of a pilot saying we are good for takeoff. All the functions on the aircraft have been checked and declared fit for purpose so we can fly. Such a creation is ordered, but there is no mechanistic predictability. 
To use Fretheim's description, it is both good and wild, not risk-free. Our science teaches us that for survival there is a need for appropriate climate conditions, with the possibility of storms and droughts. For fertile soil, much of it created by volcanoes or floods. For specific minerals, some of which seep out from where the tectonic plates collide, the cause of earthquakes and tsunamis. As Bob White writes, a good creation is more than just sunny summer days of childhood memories. It is a dynamic, fruitful universe, complete with supernovae, sunshine, snakes and slugs. Creation is not set in aspic, rather for all the creatures, it is ongoing, with life turning into an adventure. So Disney and Pixar may have actually understood the theology. Each part of creation is valued by God. Each part of creation is called to fulfil the purpose God has given it. And creation becomes very good when each part is doing its job. That goodness is lost when one of the functionaries does not function as it should. Think of listening to a symphony orchestra where one set of the instruments does its own thing. Our function as humans is to demonstrate God's character to the rest of creation and to look after it under his delegated authority. That is one of the meanings of being made in the image of God. It's an understanding that the original hearers would have got straight away. All around them they would have seen images, statues, of the Babylonian king, a reminder of who was in charge. And they would have believed that the king acted under his God's authority. So it is as those made in the image of God that we are called to rule and subdue. As Bishop John Taylor reminded us, this means that the quality of man's dominion over nature is intended to reflect the quality of God's dominion, loving, cherishing, and essentially life-giving. Tragically, many have taken rule and subdue and divorced them from their context. Even today, many environmentalists will point at Christians and say, your theology is part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Walter Brueggemann challenges such a divorce. He writes, creation faith invites reflection on human responsibility for the well-being of creation and engages the costly sanctions that go along with the abuse of creation. The wonder and mystery of creation invites not Promethean control, but respect, reverence and care for the world. We are answerable to the Creator. Psalm 8 speaks of humanity's place in the created order, but right at the start reminds us that we are under authority. O Lord, our Governor, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
is how an early English translation expresses verse 1 of that psalm. These insights point to a non-abusive interpretation of rule and subdue. When we act in accord with the function God has given us, we will begin to see a healing of creation. It's the dream of many of the prophets. And this non-abusive understanding is enhanced and extended in Genesis 2.15. The earth creature is put into the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, or to abad it and to samar it, to use the Hebrew words. Abad is commonly used elsewhere in connection with the worship and service of God. When Joshua challenges the people as to their loyalty, he says, Choose this day who you will abad. As for me and my family, we will abad the Lord. In a similar way, Samar has worship connotations and ones of protection. In Genesis 17, 9, the people are expected to Samar the covenant, to protect it by the way they live. Phyllis Dribble reflects on these verbs in this way. To till or to abide the garden is to serve the garden. To exercise power over it is to reverence it. Similarly, to keep, to summer the garden is an act of protection, not a possession. The two infinitives, to till and to keep, connote not plunder and rape, but care and attention. Then, in Genesis 3, there's a breakdown of what was described as very good. There is disobedience on the part of the man and the woman. There is a reversal of the way that creation was expected to function. In chapter 1, men and women are given authority over non-human creation. In chapter 3, we find part of the non-human creation, the serpent, taking authority over the woman and the man. And from that moment on, the triangle we constructed becomes distorted. The line joining God and the human creation becomes fractured. Its restoration is only made possible by the first coming of Jesus in his birth, life, death, resurrection and ascension to glory. The line joining human and non-human creation also becomes fractured. The man and the woman are expelled from the garden into a place of thorns and thistles. And the ground comes under a curse. Now that does not mean that the ground becomes evil. Rather it becomes cursed because it becomes subject to depredation by the human creatures, acting in a way which does not display the image of God. However, the line between God and non-human creation remains unbroken. And we can see that, for example, in Matthew 6, when Jesus says to the crowd, If you want to know how much my Father cares for you, look at the way he cares for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And that fracture between the human and non-human creation will only be finally healed 
when Jesus comes for a second time to a renewed earth. So to summarise, Genesis 1 to 3 gives us a functional description of origins, each part constructed to fulfil a special function. When all the parts function as intended, this is very good. The human creation is tasked with conveying the image of God in the world. It is to rule, to subdue, to work and protect non-human creation in line with God's care. Yes, things went awry due to human disobedience leading to fractures in our triangle. Yet God did not leave it there. The rest of the Bible is the story of God's great rescue plan with its key points of Jesus' first and second coming. As God's forgiven people, Christians are called to worship him. We are called to shape our lives in line with his intention that we might demonstrate his image in our dealings with both human and non-human creation. Creation care is about obedience to God's creation ordinance. Creation care is part of our worship of the God who made it all. We look forward and we work towards Jesus' second coming when all shall be renewed and re restored. But how we read those texts of the end will also influence our attitude to creation care and it's to those texts we will now turn. If there is a push to creation care from Genesis, there is also a pull to creation care from texts about the second coming of Jesus. Chris Wright puts it this way. The Bible teaches us to value the earth, not only because of where it came from, or rather because of who it came from, but also because of its ultimate destiny. We need, in other words, an eschatological, as well as a creational foundation to our ecological ethics and mission. Most belief systems have some sort of end view or eschatology. For many today, their eschatology points to ruin, disaster and hopelessness. Such a view stands in direct contrast to the message of hope we bear as Christians. The God will ultimately intervene to set things right in the world, to judge evil and to save a broken creation. Biblical eschatology is not concerned with timetabling the end. When the disciples wanted to know the timing, Jesus was clear that only the Father knew that. Rather, biblical eschatology is to provide a hope-filled expectation of the future, which will inspire us to act appropriately today. And we declare this hope in most churches each Sunday when we say the creed, on the third day Jesus rose again. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The first speaks of Jesus' resurrection, the second of our resurrection at the end of time.
Jesus' resurrection, one writer says, is both the promise and beginning of the absolute future. The transformation of human beings and the whole creation in Christ. And that's why when I commit the body to God in a funeral service, I can boldly proclaim in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Paul is clear that Christ will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In other words, our future is not as disembodied spirits, that's Plato, not Bible, but as embodied persons with Jesus' resurrection body as exemplar. That future will contain elements of continuity and discontinuity with what we have now. Think of Jesus' resurrection body. There was continuity. It was eventually recognisable, as Mary and Thomas and the Emmaus Road disciples found out. It was physical. Mary and the other women can try hugging him. In other accounts, he eats with his disciples and he's on the seashore cooking breakfast for them. But there was discontinuity too. Jesus appears and disappears at will. Walls cannot debar him from arriving. The tomb was empty. And our resurrection body will have that same mix of continuity and discontinuity as Jesus' resurrected body. But it is an embodied body and as such will require somewhere to inhabit. As we will see, that place is a renewed earth and this should have an impact on our attitude to creation care because it means that earth is still important to God. Jürgen Moltmann puts it this way, God does not save his creation for heaven, he renews the earth. That puts all those who hope for a resurrection under an obligation to remain true to the earth, to respect it and to love it as they love themselves. The earth is the stage of God's coming kingdom and so resurrection into God's kingdom is the hope of this earth. And throughout the New Testament our future destiny is seen as not being heaven but a renewed earth. Three examples. In 1 Thessalonians 4, those who are still alive at the second coming will be caught up in the clouds to meet Jesus. Why? So that they may accompany Jesus and the saints who have gone before on the triumphal journey to the renewed earth. It's like the Ad Portas ceremony at Winchester College. The whole school gathers at the gate, comes out of the school to the gate, in order to welcome the guest and then they escort their important visitor back into the college. Then in 2 Peter 3 we read these verses. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. King James Version had shall be burned up. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. 
But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new Akainos heaven and a new Akainos earth where righteousness dwells. Now interpreting this is a talk in itself. I just want to sketch what I think it is saying. The destruction spoken of here needs to be read in the light of the preceding verses which speak of the flood. The flood did not totally destroy but renewed. Leaving aside those in the ark, trees, land and presumably water creatures survived. And then in scripture fire is usually used for purification not destruction. King James translation shall be burned up can't be sustained by the current Greek text. Laid bare or exposed can be and again it speaks of purification and cleansing rather than destruction. And then finally we look forward to a kainos heaven and a kainos earth. Kainos has the sense of renewed rather than new where neos would more usually be used. Now if this interpretation is correct, and I believe it is, we cannot stand back and say, as some have done, creation's all going to be destroyed, so we don't need to bother caring for it. The same point is emphasised by the use of kainos for the heaven and earth at the end of Revelation. The New Jerusalem is initially there, a reference to the people of God. They come from heaven to this renewed earth with God dwelling among them, just as in Eden. That this is renewal is underlined in verse 5 with the words, I am making all things new, not I am making all new things. The narrative then turns to an impressionist painting of the city coming down out of heaven. Our verse 24 indicates that the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into this renewed city. Here is a picture of continuity of the present, with the endurance of all human culture and civilization, with arts, sciences and all human striving, freed from captivities of sin, evil and justice. The fracture between human and non-human creation is healed. In chapter 22, there are explicit reminders of Eden. The tree of life is there beside the living waters, while no longer will there be any curse. We find here continued affirmation of the worth of what we do now and a glorious hope for the future. Surely, those are incentives to take creation care seriously and to work hard at it. So what? So what? I started by asking the question, what shapes our approach to creation care? We noted briefly how our Western culture approaches things and then considered a biblical perspective by looking at the beginning and the end. In God's gracious generosity, creation is spoken into being. Each part is designed to work in conjunction with the others. And such functional working together makes it very good. 
it also creates something which is aesthetically beautiful and displays the glory of God. It's what many have sensed during lockdown. As part of this beautiful creation, humans are made in the image of God and given a particular function to take care of it as God himself would. We saw that a useful way of seeing the relationship between God, non-human creation and human creation is a triangle with these three elements of the angles, with God at the top. The human rebellion against God in Genesis 3 and the reversal of the created function between humans and the serpent resulted in a fracture of two sides of the triangle. As a result, the relationship between God and the humans was damaged, as was that between the human and the non-human parts of creation. The rest of the biblical story is one of God's actions in bringing healing and restoration. As a result of the first and then the second coming of Jesus, a renewed heaven and a renewed earth will be created. And that renewed earth has elements of both continuity and discontinuity with what we know today. And in the renewed earth, something perhaps even greater than Eden results and becomes home for God's people, in God's presence, for eternity. Yet in all of this, God never retracts the instructions given in Genesis 1 and 2. To rule, to subdue, to work, to care for. They still stand as descriptors of our human relationship to the non-human creation. We humans are tenants. A friend of mine used to describe three levels of dust in his rented house. The first level could be seen by everyone, the second by his mother when she visited, and the third by the letting agent's representative. What does God see when he considers our tenancy of his good earth? We now live in that in-between time. Jesus has come and he will come again. In this in-between time, as Paul writes to the Romans, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We wait for it patiently, but not passively. Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. As Christ's disciples, we are commissioned with the message of reconciliation. A reconciliation which extends to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And we're called to exercise that ministry now. We have many tasks to do. We're called to bring other humans to the point of reconciliation with Christ in our evangelism. 
We are called to help each other to grow as obedient disciples. We're called to bring reconciliation in our communities and our world through loving service and fighting for justice. And we are called to the safeguarding of the created order. These are the kingdom values Jesus expects us to live out. Creation care is not an optional extra for those who like that sort of thing. The biblical material puts it at the heart of our calling as humans and as followers of Jesus. Let's use the resources that are available to practically live this out. It can only improve our world now and it will prepare us for the renewed earth we will live in for eternity.